Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to have Rosalind Layton, who is an expert on regulation and strategy. Rosalind has looked at numerous countries and has compared the actual outcomes from regulatory regimes as opposed to the desired outcomes. And there's some interesting trends she found. Rosalind puts forward the idea that rigorous regulation, and it's hard to say that, is reducing consumer choice on services and also price points. And she says this is in Europe in particular. I found Rosalind to be very clear and persuasive communicator, and I thought she was had some something to say that I hadn't really thought about. So I think you'll find this an interesting podcast. And finally, as always on a personal note, Rosalind nominates a classic rock and roll song that I think we all know and enjoy. On a business note, I'll be at the Mobile Ecosystem Forum event in Dublin on the 18th and 19th of April. The event is free and is both live and online, and you can access the reg- registration link here or on LinkedIn. I'll be appearing on a panel talking about the threats of false positive, kindly sponsored by Lank Telecom, and moderated by the one and only James Williams. I hope to see you there. Yeah, speak for yourself. Hold your peace. <laughs> yeah, so Rosalind, you're an American uh, living in Denmark, and Denmark's a fantastic country. How the hell did you end up in Denmark? Well, cool. you know, I'm a Danish citizen as well after 12 years. Uh, you know, I used to live in Palo Alto. I worked in Silicon Valley, and I was recruited for a job. And, um, you know, as we like to say, you come for work and you stay for love. Um, but uh, that happens with a lot of people who move. But from in my case, I um, was able to take advantage of an industrial PhD program in Denmark, it's something we've had for 50 years, where we try to bridge the academic world and the commercial world. And Denmark is a fabulous country. They are very capitalistic. They're very serious about innovation, improving quality mm-hmm. of life. They want patents. They want new products. They want information that makes life better. So basically, I was very fortunate to um, participate in a program. It's open to any student in the world can apply. And um you know, you get a, uh, uh, you go to a Danish university and I studied internet regulation across 50 countries and studied that for five years. What was the outcome of internet regulation on innovation and mobile networks? And I continue to follow some of these measures. I've just looked at UK, for example. It's very interesting now with Brexit and UK wanting to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And so we have all sorts of natural experiments where we can compare different regulatory instruments, and then the policy outcomes. And so that is what I do. I I study countries. I study their regulatory policy. I try to advise them on different paths to achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. Not that everyone listens all the time, but where, uh, you know, I have had some success in certainly helping different regulators review, update, modernize, revise their policies. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is about helping people get connected online. It's about making things more equitable. It's about improving the outcomes for individuals and businesses and com- and, and countries and, and all of those things. And, right. and there's a lot yeah. of lessons that we can learn, you know, by looking at other countries. It doesn't mean everything is a one size fits all or copy paste, but it's always helpful to see why yeah. did this work in one country and why? Yeah, no, this is why I was interested in talking to you, Rosalind, because um you have a very interesting point of view. Um, so you pointed out your background there, and um, 
you are suggesting from our conversation is that the regular regulation that supposedly helps the consumer, in fact, is damaging the consumer is an overall statement because uh, it's not encouraging or fostering sufficient investment in networks. And for our audience, you know, typically we're it's business to business audience. Um, this affects them because of the if the networks aren't built, if 5G isn't there, if fiber isn't there to the home, they're not, the, the service just isn't what it should be. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And how, from your studies, is this done on you? Is this sort of like um, any particular markets that you think are bad examples? Any particular markets you think that are good examples? It'd be interesting to hear that. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, the one one of the issues that I looked at in my studies, you know, something this net neutrality regulation, this has been bandied about for quite some time. But if you sort of look at where we are around the world, we've had dozens of countries that have tried this. And, you know, the interesting thing is that the countries that have the lightest rules have the best results. And this is quite counterintuitive to policymakers because they think we need to do it the hardest way and the most strict and the most regulation. And in fact, the countries that do it in the light touch way, um, South Korea, great example of, so uh, of soft guidelines. Um, you know, in Denmark, before the EU regulation, we had multi-stakeholder model. Also countries that use competition law to uh, adjudicate their systems. So, so, you know, this is one of the things where I'm very cautious because regulators will say, oh, well, we need the toughest rules or we're going to have the toughest. And you don't always get the best results because sometimes the largest companies can conform to the toughest rules. And that makes it hard for the small enterprises to get a foot in the door. And, and that's really, you know, what I find unfortunate. So I'm interested, you know, so let's say, look, we look at the EU today, we have a major shortfall in fiber to the home and full 5G for everybody and something mm -hmm. on the order of 300 billion euros. It's a staggering number. And that's very concerning for everyone, you know, not just for the everyday person. So, 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 sorry, yeah. Rosalind, so you, you uh, estimate that they're underinvested by 300 billion euros. Is that what you're saying? This is not my number. The different, different authorities have come up. You know, the European Commission has used the different uh, Boston Consulting Group proposed this number. Uh, I would look at, I've just looked at UK, I've, uh, Barclays, global investors suggest, uh, for example, UK is um, shortfalling at three, four hundred million pounds a year because of a incorrect regulation. And they, in general, the, um, you know, the, uh, d what's it called, the DCF, their group found that they're behind 15 billion pounds. So, hmm. you know, so, so, and again, this can also be expectations. Political leaders want everybody to have the best and fast everything, and maybe every end user doesn't feel that. But I will say, you know, everybody feels like if, where you could go, well, I'm in a rural area, I'd like better connectivity, I would like to have, you know, be able to do worth more with my connection. So it's not optimal. And what I would suggest is that we could get there with better pricing, with more flexible pricing, with more ability to have partnerships, which right now, most of the regulations in Europe really don't allow broadband to be priced in a flexible way. And then also allowing the ecosystem to participate in the pricing. And, and okay. that's really... Okay, Rosa, so sorry for interrupting you there, but when, what do you mean by flexible pricing? Are you talking about price options with different service packages? Is that what you mean? 
Well, so for example, a typical way broadband's priced today, we price it like we've done since 1995 when email was the key application. Uh, but you know, it's a sort of uniform flat rate pricing where every bit is charged the same. And you know, that might be fine, but let's say this, not all bits are equal. You know, there's some bits where we would want to say, look, why don't we make it free or reduce the price for a social benefit reason? In other cases, you'll say, hey, I need those bits for my call with Pat and I'm talking to this audience. So I want to guarantee I have this call at the perfect fidelity. I want to make sure I have no latency or whatever. I'm going to pay. I want to pay extra. I'm going to pay for premium at that time. Alternatively, let's say I'm a competitor. I want to compete against Netflix. Can I please sponsor my data so I can compete against these big companies that have already built their infrastructure and I want to use your network capabilities? Other things like, hey, can I bundle my service with your device? Can I bundle you know, my connectivity with this car? Any number of, of things or, or, or other things around, uh, I want to build a smart factory. Um, how do I, you know, how do I do that? So, you know, what I would say is that our notions of sort of one size fits all, and then let's mm. price everything is equal, and let's price it all the same. That may be good for some subset and some things, but we want, as we're moving to smart networks, we want to enable all of these use cases, not just one use case. We want to enable right. it for everyone. And that's why we need to have flexible pricing where the price of the bit is not the same. It needs okay. to be flexible and the consumer should have more flexibility to choose to, to get define the price, not the regulator defining the price, but the consumer having the say of what they want. Right. So, so let me sort of come back to, against that. It was some sort of maybe, um, contrary points of view. Um, one is, um, you know, first of all, if there's this, is, you, you, what you're, what you're arguing about to some extent is against, net uh, neutrality, which is sort of one of the famous principles of the internet, right? And, you know, so for the sake of argument, if I got, um, if I use Facebook or Twitter or, you know, say, say Facebook or Google or we're, we're fairly wealthy companies, that they could subsidize the service, either would they pay the operator, you know, and what's the operator, what's to stop the operator just saying, well, thanks very much, I'll take that as profit and dividends. Um, yeah. Is, is it not very complex to do this? So there's different. So I guess what I'd say here is this is a great area for discussion presently that a lot of countries are looking at because they have these major shortfalls. And interestingly, it's in a country like South Korea, which has the world's most advanced networks and adoption. And I think it's fascinating there because you have companies that compete directly with American platforms, but they're very serious about their connectivity needs. And they basically say, look, we're going to require you large companies need to have a negotiation to recover the cost. You can't just say it's all on the end users, that if in fact you're going to push in so much traffic into the networks, you've got to figure out how to cover it. And you can't mm -hmm. just say, look, I've sent it to you. It's your fault, your responsibility. It's a shared responsibility. So, you know, you might just say, why are we even debating this? Because everybody benefits when you get the data. But it is a big deal because, you know, Netflix has gone in and said, we have no obligation to negotiate with you. You just have to deliver our traffic. We don't care what it costs. Too bad it increased 24x overnight. It's your problem. Mm -hmm. That doesn't cut it because, you know, there's actually the courts have said that this is um, we're not going to tell you what the price is, but you guys have to figure it out. And you cannot use the threat of 
I'm not delivering my movie if you charge me. And that's been one of the challenges they've dealt with. So, um, you know, that's, I would love to see that things should work out. And economic theory would say, well, it should work that way. Unfortunately, it hasn't. So some countries say, well, look, the government has to step in and maybe it's not requiring it to operators. But for example, in USA, they're actually saying, we have a shortfall in rural areas. We have digital divide. We have many people who don't have access for a variety of reasons. We're going to require large companies to contribute to universal service funds. Okay. Now, the money does not go directly to a telecom company. It goes to the FCC and they distribute it. Mm -hmm. So this is not an issue about money going directly to the um, yeah, telecom. Right. It could go to a hospital. It could go to a school. It could go to a library. It could go to end users. Right now in the U.S., there's an affordable connectivity program, which is one of the most subscribed um, broadband subsidy programs, providing everybody additional $30 per month. So right there, you can see there's a, the shortfall that's to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So there's and there's other models that would say, look, technology, do we need to do a better job of coordinating on our technological platforms? Um, you know, I think. Some some estimates to me that we could have a 30% improvement globally of the efficiency of data. I think that's quite significant. Now, this is not to say that, you know, the Netflixes and Metas of the world are highly efficient. I mean, I think companies all the time want to be efficient, but there could be more opportunities of coordination and right. um, improvement in technology to, so, to, to yeah. make so, more data so, more efficient. So just, just that, now, this is my own thoughts but I, I don't i haven't done the analysis that you've done sure. but is, it not, is it not true that say in the u.s that uh, the average um you know a broadband subscription is a lot higher than it is in europe i mean is it so you know in europe for all this regulation there's uh, as my reading is there's yeah. more regulate there's more com competition in each market uh, whereas the tendency and this is not a dig at the u.s is tendency no, no, no. after those economies for monopolies or semi-monopolies to you know um, reduce competition increase price so right. um, is that a fair comment do you think so here's what i'd say is the the in europe where you typically let's it depends on the tier if you will but mm. in some cases you may have lower prices for certain tiers but they may be a slower network and less data so you have to look at the unit cost but i will tell you in the united states since the since the removal of the regulation in the u.s Prices on the highest tier have fallen 60%. Wow. And that has really been because of wireless networks have driven down the cost of a cable and people have cut the cord because they're going to FWA. It's growing quite fast. It's quite significant. So, you know, the issue is not just inexpensive broadband. I think it's about quality broadband of what you want to do. Do you have the subscription that enables you? To, and for many people, look, they just want a good mobile subscription. They're happy with that. You know, other people, they want a home and mobile, you know, there's any number of things. But it, uh, so what I would say is, you know, of, of course, in Europe, you can get a basic mobile subscription for a low price and you can roam and, and all of that's great. But is that enough for you to start your home business? If you live in parts of Europe, you can't use your home broadband. It's not sufficient for doing those things. You know, whereas in the United States, there's people are, are moving out of urban areas to Idaho and South Dakota and all of these rural places and mm -hmm. keeping their job in Silicon Valley because the broadband is allowing yeah, yeah. them to do their high power job. 
So that is an important thing about mobility and leveling up and all of these issues that we're talking about in European Union about um, we don't want to leave people behind. We want to level up different areas. We want everybody to have the same opportunities. And we want to support that if you're going to start a business, you don't have to be in the center of a town. You can start your business in a rural area. Sure. So, you know, to me, it's not just the basic price of broadband. Is it what the broadband you need to do what you need to okay. do? Okay. Now, that's, that's a great, Rosalind. I really appreciate that because it does challenge what you might call the conventional thinking. And, you know, I understand your point. Um, yeah, it certainly gave me uh, something to think about. Um, how do people contact you? What's a good way for people to contact you? Well, listen, I have a, a website, rosalindlayton.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. You know, you can ping me there and uh, I would love to hear from you. And, um, it's wonderful to to connect with you and your audience. Thank you. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, you sound like you're using all the bits you can yourself there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for this opportunity. There's a lot to cover, and you know, I try to do a little bit every day. Sure. And, and what, how, what's I suppose everybody's going to ask you this question: is what's mm -hmm. the, what's the good differences and the bad differences between living in California and uh, Denmark? What, what, <laughs> Weather, you? you know, we had a, <laughs> it's March 28th. We had a snowstorm yesterday. <laughs> so, so no, I mean, listen, in the summer, it's the most wonderful place in the world. I don't have a car. You know, when I lived in California, I had to drive a car everywhere. And, you know, you're basically tied to your car. I have a bicycle. I love it. I save two hours a day. So I have a lot more time. Uh, you know, it's cold and dark here for a lot of the year. Of course, we're very cozy with our candles and our kuga and all of that. Um, but you know what? The broadband is great. So I can work with people all over the world just like you. And, and that keeps me going. And, you know, fortunately, pandemic's over. So, you know, yeah. we have oh. a wonderful airport, which gets us to every part of the world very quickly and efficiently. Okay. And <laughs> what, what do you do for hobbies? Is it Mostly I, stuff. Or... I yes, well, I have three wonderful kids, so keep me busy, and a great husband. And but you know, we love food and we love to travel. Um, I have, of course, family in the United States, and um, it's when we're not bicycling, um, you know, I love to read. I don't get enough time to do it. I love to read. I love to write, and I do that for work. But I also enjoy that for my own hobbies. Listening to music is also great. Okay. I have studied. Music. Uh, my my music teacher is going to be. You what did you did you play something? Well, a recorder, <laughs> but I played in an in a Renaissance ensemble. Oh wow! We went around. Oh, this... We're very serious in studying. That's a serious. But, uh, yes, a serious endeavor. And actually, you know what I really enjoyed was music appreciation and music history, and studying about, um, you know, uh, the different periods of music, and also as an art form, music is actually the slowest art form. It is the slowest to evolve. But now, you know, because of technology, music is changing more quickly. And I'm sure if you talk to music people, mm -hmm. um, how what I see today, and especially it's a big deal with broadband, is content industries. How do they integrate their music industry with um, travel? Because right. they want people to come to their country for concerts. And they, they are trying to do creative economy with music and then integrating it with concerts, with performances, um, platforms. So, you know, as I, I think we talked a little bit about South Korea, it's now the world's seventh largest creative economy, mm. and they're putting all those pieces together. It's very exciting. Um, nobody does it all perfectly. There's a lot of trial and error, 
but mm-hmm. we're countries study that about how do I, you know, promote my culture by making it attractive for people through music, through a platform. You come and visit my country, you watch a, you watch a concert, you subscribe to the music, you know, all these things, a different licensing, you know, there's all of that. And and that's a very exciting uh, thing that's going on now. Right. So as you know, on this podcast, the guest nominates the playout song. So um, what did you have in mind? Yes, yeah, so you know, I I I'm thinking about this, and a song that to me is really the quintessential rock and roll song is, um, you know, "Thunderstruck" by ACDC, <laughs> and I love this song because you know it's a um, it's almost like a bit of medieval chant to me because you hear the <laughs> guitar good. riff and the drum beat, and it's like <laughs> you have monks could be doing this, but but it's honestly it's such a timeless song, and. You know, I, I think a lot of people are studying, you know, what's where's metal today and where's rock and roll and so on. But you can always play that song. It's so timeless. And you, mm. you know, I, I've always felt that that was a, a, a great was a great song. And apparently those guys, it was based on a toy they had as kids. It was really? the Thunderstream toy and they turned it into the song Thunderstruck. <laughs> so we can all agree to Enjoy you know, it. that's yeah, yeah. how we yeah. have in our life. So. Well, here it comes <laughs> now. But uh, uh, listen, Rosalind, it's been brilliant having you on board. And thanks really for, I say provocative, but in a good way um, and insightful way in al- analyze. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. And hello to all your listeners. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.